news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You have Carly here to tell you about our upcoming The Shit No One Tells You About Writing virtual retreat. It is on September 24th and 25th, and we are so excited to bring this back to you guys again. We did it in January. We had an absolute blast and got such amazing feedback that we were so excited to be able to put together another amazing weekend. We have 18 hours of jam-packed content. We have 13 speakers. It's such an amazing, inspiring, and just community-building event um, filled with so many learning opportunities opportunities from authors, editors, and various speakers around the industry. We can't wait to see you guys there. Check out more on our website and we will see you soon. Today's guest is the USA Today and number one nationally best-selling author of Women on the Edge, which has sold in 11 countries to date. She's also a journalist and freelance editor. Her work has appeared in Now Magazine, The Village Post, The Thrill Begins, and The Crime Hub, among other publications. Watch Out for Her is her second novel. She lives in Toronto, where she's currently working on her next book. It's my pleasure to welcome Samantha Bailey. Sam, welcome back to the show. Thank you, I am so thrilled to be here. You know how much I love your show and you. Thank you for adding that. I'm thrilled to have you back again because we loved you so much the first time that we had to do a victory lap, this time with Watch Out For Her. Now, for our listeners, you hear us constantly on the show. When we are critiquing your query letters, we talk about planting curiosity seeds and how important it is to do that 
in the first chapter in those opening pages so that the reader has got theories, so that they're actively participating in the work, so that they're trying to figure things out, and so that they will keep turning pages. Now, Sam has written a masterclass first chapter, and I'm going to ask her to read it to us. We haven't done this on the podcast before, but it's really important to me that you hear this so that you can see examples of these curiosity seeds. Sam, take it away. Chapter one, Sarah, now. I watch people. With the voyeur's keen eyes, I peer out the window of our rental car as Daniel pulls up to our new house at 227 Lilac Lane. This is the house we'll be living in for the next six months until we find one we want to buy. I've seen only grainy pictures of the inside. The new consulting firm my husband will be working for found the home for us, an incentive to bring him on board. It makes this sudden move across the country easier. Easier, but still hard. At twilight, the detached two-story blends into the others on this quiet suburban Toronto street, like I hope we will. At the end of the block, there's a cul-de-sac and a set of boxy townhouses across from a ravine. I shiver, not from the bitter mid-September chill, but because the woods feel too close. They remind me too much of everything we left behind in Vancouver. Our son Jacob and I exit the car, sneakers squelching in the puddle from an overnight rain. The sound centers me in the present, far from Holly Monroe, our babysitter over the summer, and the reason I agreed to this unexpected move. Daniel is ahead of us, dragging a suitcase behind him. Every few seconds, he looks over his shoulder, smiling. I smile back, but inside I'm crying over everything I've hidden from him and everything he might be hiding from me. Jacob stops in front of the three-bedroom red brick home looming before us. It has eyes, he says. His voice is flat, his body trembling through his thin coat. The wind is sharper in Toronto than North Vancouver, something else my son is now forced to get used to. The windows are the eyes and the door is the mouth. It has no nose though. I pull him close. A six-year-old's imagination, but still his words haunt me. Jacob isn't aware of the real reason we've left Vancouver. All he knows is that daddy got an exciting new job as a business consultant in the city where he grew up and mommy's supports daddy. Neither my little boy nor my husband knows anything about the nights I hid in the thick cluster of trees outside our pool enclosure because it offered the perfect view of our babysitter's house. I wanted to be her, Holly, young, beautiful, her whole life an exciting blank slate. But then I stopped trusting her. And in the end, I wanted only to protect what was mine. I turned to my son as he slips his thumb into his mouth, a habit I thought he'd gotten over this summer. My heart constricts at how vividly the freckles dotting Jacob's nose stand out against his chalk white skin. He looks terrible. We took the red eye so he would sleep, but he was devastated about being uprooted so suddenly that he cried for almost the entire flight. It's been said that you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. I have just one child and he's shattered. So that's how I'm feeling too. He's lost his home and left behind everyone he loves, except me and Daniel. Ready to see the house, I ask? Trying to sound upbeat, Jacob pulls his wet thumb out of his mouth. The skin around the nail is ripped and chapped. I want to go home. Well, that's impossible, I think to myself, but I don't say it out loud. Two weeks ago, Daniel sold our beautiful cliffside home in Forest View to a private buyer from his exclusive golf club. Our home doesn't belong to us anymore. My husband is taking care of everything for once. A far cry from the man who doesn't make his own lunches for work and who has left child rearing our son mostly to me. All I have to do now in this new place is be Jacob's mother. I should have been content with that all along rather than yearning for more for my own sense of self. Right. So now there's one other little passage that I'm just going to read that comes a little bit later. It says, Daniel locks eyes with me, his eyes full of regret. Regret about what? How strained and distant our marriage has become? How invisible I've been to him for the last year? How friendly he and Holly were when they didn't know I was watching? No, I won't go there right now. He's reassured me. 
I had it wrong. It was all in my head. Since the day Daniel suggested moving across the country to fix everything, he's been making such an effort to be more attentive, to make me feel like I matter. Like when we got married 15 years ago, I've chosen to believe him that nothing was going on between him and Holly. I've chosen to believe it. But do I actually? Right, and then there's more there. Now, holy heck, Sam, talk about planting curiosity seeds. Now, I'm hoping you can give our listeners some practical advice for how you set about doing this when you begin an opening chapter. You know your premise. You know what you want to hide from the reader. You know what you're withholding from them. But you also know what you want them to be curious about. Is it just a case of it comes to you as you're writing it down? Or is it trial and error, figuring out if you've told too much, when you should leave the trail of breadcrumbs? So to that, I would say it is very, very detailed, precise planning and a lot of trial and error. Um, My own self-editing, when I edit, I edit. So first, I love cutting. I love it. I love nothing more than being redlined by my critique partners and editor. And I love to redline myself. I don't know why I'm a masochist. It makes me feel really good to chop away, you know, to, to kind of clear cut everything to get to the bones of what needs to be in that first chapter. And when I edit on hard copy, I change the font to comic song so that I can read it as though it's not my own writing. I edit on my e-reader. I send it to an email, an email to myself so I can see it in a different format. And then I edit on computer. So there's so much editing that goes into the whole book, but especially in that first chapter. And for me, while I do edit that first chapter, I find it's probably the most edited because as much as I try not to edit as I write, I just, I, I just do, but I really do need to have the whole book written before I can go back and really see what exactly needs and then doesn't need to be in that first chapter. I edit while I go along as well. And it's purely because I know if those first chapters are really tight and if they're good and if they're strong, then I've got a solid foundation from which to build from. And then I have less anxiety about the rest of it. So do you find naturally that when you write, do you withhold too much or do you find you give too much initially in that first draft so that later you go, oh, I maybe gave away too many clues. I maybe gave too much context. And so I'm taking it out. Or is it that you naturally withhold and people are like, okay, Sam, you need to give us something. I find I, I'm not sure I like to use the word withhold only, only because it's not the strategy that I'm necessarily using. I'm not trying to hide anything or trick the reader. Um, I think I'm just trying to find the right pace place to reveal the story and reveal the characters as the characters are revealing themselves, not only to the reader, but also to themselves as they're growing and, and, and progressing throughout the story. And I find my first drafts, my first drafts, I throw it all in there. Like all of it. I mean, that first, it is awful. My first drafts are are pure garbage and nobody should ever see them. I, I tend to make the exact same mistakes. No matter how long I've been doing this, I make the same mistakes. I have these crutches that I instantly revert to no matter how much I've learned in this process and how, how much I now, you know, know better. But I feel like I have to do that. I have to just vomit, sorry, out everything. And then I can hack away at it. Yeah, 100% the same. And, you know, when we say withholding, you know, I feel like 
This word has gotten bad connotations because sometimes writers withhold and the reader feels manipulated, which means the writer has not done the magic trick as well as they should. It's the same as when you go see a magician. You know, if the magician does it well, you don't feel manipulated. You don't feel like, you know, you were made to look here when you should have been looking there because you enjoy the process of it. And certainly as writers, we need to be 100% in control of our craft. We need to know when to reveal, when not to reveal. And like you say, sometimes the character doesn't even know something themselves. So certainly in that instance, it's not that the character's withholding something, but we as the author need to know when we need to pull back on those on those kinds of things. And, you know, if, if your first drafts are messy, that's great. I do, a, I call it an emotional or an intellectual vomit on the page as well. <laughs> exactly. and, then you, and then you come with a mop and you clean it up. And it, you know, starts to to get really tight. Something else that you've done so well here, Sam, is creating mood and tension. You know, the ways in which you've done this in terms of Jacob being freaked out about how the house looks, that it's got eyes and a mouth, but no nose, that the trees feel like they're closing in on her because they're on the part of the ravine, etc. So we're already setting the mood. There is tension here in these opening pages in that we're feeling uneasy with the character. Again, how much of that is something that comes naturally to you? How much of it is that you say to yourself, Sam, this is what you have to pay attention to? Because I'm not someone who likes writing setting, but setting is a way to help create that mood. So that's something I really have to focus on. I'm the same, actually. I don't love overly long descriptions. Even though I'm a very visual person, I tend to like shorter, more concise descriptions and powerful descriptions when I read, when I write. And it is something that I have to make sure that I go back and I layer and I layer and I layer, trying to, with every draft I write, what tone do I want to set? Yes, what do I want the the reader to see? What do I want the reader to feel? Um, trying to use all of the senses, but that is something that definitely comes with time through through drafting as as I'm writing. Because again, that first chapter when I first write it, it's pretty much narrative dialogue, and then from there, I have to go and I build and I build, and I love that building. The building of it is something that excites me so much to take it from the bare bones and then each step, it just grows and grows and grows into a story. It's, it's, it's just the most magical thing in the world. And you said you've got these crutches that you fall back on. Can you think of some of them that you can give us examples of? So for, I know for me, I overwrite, I belabor a freaking point and I made it in the first paragraph and then I do it again in the second one and give a metaphor in the third one. Just in case the reader hasn't been clobbered over the head enough. For you, what are your crutches? So exactly the same. I definitely overwrite. Definitely overwrite because it's almost like you're trying to find that golden line because it really is only one line that you need. You only need that one line, but it takes a long time to find that perfect line or the perfect line that you feel is best for the book. And I also write characters in the most like soap opera frothy way at first. 
I don't know why. I think maybe in me, there is this very strong desire to one day write the soapiest thriller I can imagine. Because yeah, in the beginning, it is, you know, the twirling of the mustaches and the, you know, I don't know, in my editor. <laughs> yes, yes. Even, you know, when it gets to my editor, I sometimes, I generally, luckily, everything is caught on proposal and in the outline where my editor, my agent is like, yeah. Okay, <laughs> this is this is your young and the restless, you know, all my children, all my children's side. But I again feel like I have to do that to get to a believable character, to be able to figure out who are these people, what do they want, how far are they willing to go to get it, what are they going to do to get what they want. It's really, it's really a journey of you know, it's 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 like when you meet somebody for the first time, you have all these preconceived notions of who they are and then over time as you get to know them and and what they hide from you but you can see through their eyes and through their gestures you know that's that's how you really truly get to know the core of somebody and just like people our characters on their best kind of behavior in the beginning you know we when we meet people we're on our best behavior we're our most sparkly we tell the anecdotes that people have laughed at the most etc but after a bit of time that that falls away and people get to see us for who we are. So now in terms of writing a dual point of view novel, you wrote the one from the first person, other one from the third person, like what were the challenges that you faced there? Was there a reason why you didn't want to do two first person narratives? And what advice do you have for our listeners when they sit down to tackle the same kind of thing? Well, I think I'll start with the advice because I think keep in mind that anything can change. We changed Holly from it was third person past to third person present pretty, pretty late in the editing process because it just felt it needed to be more immediate. We felt her um, point of view needed to be more immediate. And no, it is not easy to change because you have to change everything. When you change a tense or the point of view, you're changing everything. It's not just the tense and the point of view. It's, it's all the dialogue and all the narrative. But that's fine. Change is good. Change, editing, all of that is good. It was a very conscious choice for me to do first and third person. First for Sarah, because I wanted it to be as immediate as possible, as close as possible for us to be right inside her head at every moment she is going through this journey, at every moment that she is trying to figure out who is lying to her, what secrets are being kept as she is trying to keep all these secrets of her own. I felt that that was very important and to give her the most agency. I wanted her to have a lot of agency for Holly. Uh, I was also, it was very important to me to choose third person, but a close third person because I wanted a little bit of separation. And Holly is younger. Holly is really trying to figure out who she is, what she wants, how she's going to get it. She doesn't even know what that is. She is a character. They're both desperate for love and attention, but she is so desperate for her father's love and attention, which creates so much confusion and desperation and lack of self-worth. And when you, I think, struggle with self-worth, your thoughts become quite muddled because you don't know what you truly think of yourself and others. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. It came through. Cece wanted me to tell you how much she's loving reading the book as well. 
she was super excited that I was getting to interview you today. So we're at the end of our time. Unfortunately, Sam, always such a pleasure to to have you on the podcast. For our listeners, we're putting Watch Out For Her on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you buy it there, you support the podcast and independent bookstore, and you support Sam as well. Sam, tell us just before you go about the success of this book, because we always hear about the sophomore slump which has not happened in this in this instance. It's hit the bestseller lists as well. So can I go back to Cece for one minute? I just want to say thank you to Cece. I saw Cece's comment yesterday. I'm actually going to see Cece on June 18th for an, for an event. I'm very excited about that. I will say that I was quite terrified to write a second book. I didn't want to disappoint anyone. I didn't want to disappoint myself. And I made uh, also the decision that this was going to be a slower burn book because it suited the story. And I always have to do what is best for the story so that I can stay true to my voice, to my characters, to their journeys. I didn't know what to expect. And I had no expectations. I learned that. I learned to have no expectations in publishing, but big hopes and dreams. I was blown away when it became, when Watch Out For Her hit number one instantly on the Toronto Star and Global Mail bestseller list. I I, I, I was so shocked and I, so stunned. To, I, I'm still, I, I can't believe it. My readers are so good to me. They support me so much. The amount of work that goes into their posts, reels, the support that I have behind me helped me with the second book. And I could never, ever have done it without, you know, my publishing team, my agent, my, my, my friends, my author friends, and, and just the book community at large. Um, I don't think it will ever feel real because in my head, I am still that author desperately wanting the book deal, getting rejected. You know, like I, I, I don't really, I cannot possibly take it all in, but I am so grateful to be able to have the career of my dreams. And we as your readers are super grateful as well. It definitely takes a village in publishing. Hi, everyone. It's Cece. Question, what's the biggest difference between a book and a movie? If you listen to the podcast, you already know the answer. It's not that movies have things like special effects or soundtracks or even actors at their disposal. It's that books allow us to be inside someone's head to experience their inner lives, which is why the ability to write a character's interiority is so important. With that in mind, I've developed a webinar called Writing Interiority, Revealing Your Character's Inner Life. Join me on August 18th via Zoom to learn all about the foundation and functions of interiority, including how to leverage interiority into plot points. We'll cover techniques on how to effectively convey a character's inner life in a way that keeps the reader turning the pages of a story with lots of examples from some amazing books. And of course, we'll have time for a Q&A. Writers of all genres are invited to attend as knowing how to write interiority is a superpower useful for all storytellers. For information on how to register, please head over to my Instagram or Twitter page, click on the link in my bio, and follow the instructions. And don't worry, if you're busy on August 18th, register anyway, because the class will be recorded and a recording will be sent to everyone 24 hours later. I hope to see you there.
my youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things though about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky though to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Zibby Owens is an author, podcaster, publisher, CEO, and mother of four. Zibby founded Zibby Owens Media, a privately held media company designed to help busy people live their best lives by connecting books and each other. One division is Moms Don't Have Time To, the home for Zibby's podcasts, publications, including two anthologies, 
and communities. The other is Zibi Books, a publishing home for fiction and memoir, which she co-founded with Lee Newman. Her award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, has been downloaded millions of times. She is a regular columnist for Good Morning America, Katie Couric Media, and Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. Her upcoming memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, comes out July 1st, 2022. Her first children's book, Princess Charming, debuted April 19, 2022, and will be followed by a second. She lives in New York with her husband and four children. For more information, visit ZibbyOwens.com and follow her on Instagram at ZibbyOwens. Listeners, I hope you will join me in welcoming today's guest, the fabulous Zibby Owens. But before you do, can you please wish me good luck? Because I am super nervous to interview Zibby. Zibby is a fabulous interviewer. Her podcast is great. I'm a listener myself. And she's interviewed some of my favorite authors, including Delia Efron, who, as you know, is my all-time favorite Efron. So wish me good luck. Here we go. Welcome, Zibby. I am so happy that you're here. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Thanks for having me. Yay. Okay, listeners, you're in for a treat because I asked Zibby to think of two truths and one lie writing edition. And I have no idea what she's about to say, and I'm going to try to guess the lie. And I hope that you will too, wherever you are, whether you're listening to this at home or in the car, wherever else. Um, Let's see if we can figure out what's the truth and what's the lie here. Okay, Zibby, go ahead. Okay. This is the the bookends edition of Two Truths and a Lie. Okay. (laughs) Just remember, I read the memoir, so you can't write anything. I know, I know. know. Okay, okay. Okay. Number one, I have been working on parts of this memoir for 18 plus years. Number two, I cut 30,000 words of the book very close to the final deadline. And number three, I know exactly how many books are in the recommended reading list. Ooh, okay. I know something else about you now, something you can't Google. You're a very good liar because I can't tell by your face. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) I'm trying to figure this out. I don't think it's the third one. Like, I I think the third one's true because it feels like something you would know. You're so organized. Um, I'm going to go with you did not cut 30,000 words close to the deadline. I did. Ah, so which one is the lie? <laughs> I do not know how many books I rec- are in the recommended reading. Oh my gosh. And that's the one I thought was true. She totally <laughs> tricked me. The listeners, she tricked me. I hope she tricked you too. <laughs> Fun game. Glad I could lie successfully. Thank you. You're like, you're great at this. You'd be a really good poker player. Maybe you already are a really good poker player. Hmm. We'll have to find okay. out. So let's talk about bookends. A Memoir of Love, Loss, and Literature. I actually want to start with that title because Bookends is such an amazing title, perfect for this book. And the subtitle is also beautiful. It's so insightful. So was it always called Bookends? Tell us about that. It was not. I really struggled to find the right title. For a long time, it was called The Book Messenger. But it seemed a little bit too much like a novel. Like I could picture a girl on a bike or some, you know, like something going through a street and that, that's not the vibe. So we scrapped that. And I thought of so many different things. I asked everyone in my family, I asked anyone I would ever talk to, like, what do you think about these for? What? You know, and I would email my editor all the time. How about this? How about this? How about this? Anyway, eventually 
I thought of bookends and I was like, oh, well, that's perfect. Why did I not think of that before? And that's how it, that's how it came to be. I feel like that's always true of titles. When you don't know the right one until you hear it. And when you mm-hmm. do, you just know, you just know that that's the right way to go. And I love it. In framing your story, because I know that that's a huge challenge with memoirs and our listeners, a lot of them write memoirs. And a question we always get is, like, how do I know what I put in? How do I know what I take out? Like framing a life lived is not the same thing as a story. So framing a life into a story, turning memories into mm-hmm. memoir. How was that process for you? How, what were the challenges and what were some of the joys, hopefully? That's a good question. I started by brainstorming with my editor, Carmen Johnson at Little A, who I adore. And I thought it would be easier for me to write if I thought of it as a series of scenes because I think about things very visually. So I knew there were many scenes that I absolutely would have to put in. And it wasn't so much like, how should I write about my life? It's that I felt so compelled to tell a few of these stories. That's why I was writing the book to begin with. So I started with those. Why do I want to tell them so much? What do I need to do? What context do I need to set? And some things that I added, I hadn't intended to put in, but as I went along, they made a lot of sense to add. And I was like, well, of course now I have to have this in. I took out so much stuff. This is the reference to the 30,000 words. I really cut a huge chunk at the last minute. And when I showed my mom who read basically every draft, what I had taken out, she's like, well, you know, I don't even know. I, I just, I don't even miss it, whatever it was. You know, like, I mean, there were a few things she noticed, but they were scenes. They were in my life. They were well-written. I like them. Maybe I'll use them for something eventually, but they didn't further the story. They didn't tell the reader something new about me, about what I learned, about what I went through. They were just moments that didn't propel the story any further. So I had to really go through and say, like, what is this doing for the story? Like, is this helping it along? Does this show something new? Why am I including this? And then I was ruthless in extraction. I'll say ruthless is a fair characterization, given that you cut 30,000. Wait, what does very close to the deadline mean? Are we talking weeks? Yeah, like the last two weeks before I was supposed to have the final, like copy edits had already been done. Oh my god! And gosh. I went and I went back and and chopped, but it was okay. And then my editor after was like, "I don't even know how you did that." So that is but amazing. I did it. Yeah, I did amazing. it over. I did it over one weekend. That's amazing. I I love that you did that. So what was the what was scared you the most about writing this memoir? I really wasn't scared to write this memoir. I was so excited to write it. I have been trying to sell it for so long. And I wasn't I guess what scared me is that it might not be good. Right, that I would fail in, in trying to capture all the things I wanted to do. But there don't worry, it's very good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it, uh, there wasn't one part of life that scared me to go back to or anything like that. I just was scared knowing as I wrote the final draft that became what is now Bookends, knowing that I had sold it because I sold it on proposal. So I knew as I was writing, it would be read. But if I thought about that, I couldn't do a thing. I couldn't write a word. So when I started, I put in huge letters up at the top of my Word document, no one will ever see this. (laughs) And then I was able to trick myself into starting. And then every so often I had to just remind myself and just say, you know what? No one will ever see this. Like it's going to be so different by the time it comes out. This particular version, no one will ever see. Just do it. 
No one will ever see this. I predict listeners will now also write that. Try it, um, but it has to be a big, big font. It has big to be, font. No, it was in the document. Like I typed it, big font, bold, maybe like 36 point font. No one will ever and, see it. It's the secret to fearlessness. I, I love it. What I, what I found perhaps to be most memorable about, about Book Ants is that it's very inspirational, which I expected it to be because I knew enough about the story from the pitch. And I expected it to be, you know, well-written and fun because you're obviously a great writer. So these were all things that I was, you know, you pleasantly delivered these things. I hadn't expected, and maybe this is on me, that it would have so many insightful life lessons that just apply, I feel like, to every human, like every human on the planet. I will give you examples. So for example, um, business school, and you're like, good enough, we'll have to do. And, you know, in the context of you being such an overachiever, someone who just pushes herself so much to always you know, never waste any opportunity that's given to you. You recognize so many of the privileges that you that you have and you're just trying to make the most of it and trying to make everyone really proud around you. And in business school where you had to go, good enough, good enough is going to have to be what I what I do. And, and that lesson I think is so powerful. Another example was the analogy about things on your plate. You know, we always talk about, I have too much on my plate. I have too much on my plate. And it you mentioned it's not about subtracting. It's actually about adding because what's what was... On the plate was the issue, the rotten spinach, I think, was the analogy. Yes. I mean, that was not from me. I took that. I, I, I credited it in the book, but it was someone on my podcast, Dr. Amy Shaw, who, who really said it's not that you have too much on your plates, that you might not have the right things on your plate. So that was from her book, I'm So Effing Tired. But I adopted that. I live by that now. And I found it to be the most helpful advice I'd gotten in a long time. And I love how like filled with actually, like this is not a practical how-to book. And yet I feel like people will come out of it with, you know, filled with awesome life lessons. And of course, because you've read so many books. So you mentioned that you don't know how many books you recommended, but how did you choose them? Like every chapter has like books sprinkled in, the books that you were reading, the books that you were enjoying at the time. How did you choose them? Did you like go through your Goodreads and figure out what you were reading? No, I didn't actually use to keep a book reads thing at all. I did it a couple different ways. One was memories where I literally remember very clearly what I was reading and then, and I, and I put a lot of those in some chapters I wrote without any book references. And I was like, I'm going to go back in and add them later, but I just want to get the story down. And then I would go back and add them. Some scenes I wasn't sure. I couldn't remember what I was reading. So I went through all sorts of bestseller lists for that year. And I was trying to remember like, what were people reading? What was I reading? And then I was like, oh, right. Of course. That's what I was reading. Like, like sometimes I need needed to get the trigger of the actual book. And then once I had it, I would remember where I read it, but not backwards. I love that. So organic. So as I mentioned, full of insights and full of great book recommendations. If you could choose a lesson, I guess we could frame it like that for every writer to learn in writing school, the writing school of Zibby Owens, what would that <laughs> lesson be? <laughs> I should open that. That would be fun. You don't do uh, enough, so Zibby. So I, do, I, am, I absolutely I am do need one more thing. I am <laughs> oh, I'm starting new things. I have something else coming soon. Two new things. And I'm starting classes soon as well. I, I don't know. I, I, I have to stop, but I'm having so much fun. Light, uh, writing lesson from Zibby's writing school. I mean, there are a lot of tactical things that I think help with books. Everything from, you know, some are obvious, like strong opening sentences, strong closing sentences for each chapter. I think it's really important to 
jump right into where you're going and start off strong. I deleted the first chapter of what used to be there originally and rewrote it and rewrote it. And many times I used to have an introduction. So anyway, well, that's not advice. I mean, my main piece of advice is sort of on the publishing side or do you, but on the writing side, I think my main piece of advice is just keep the opening sentences and closing sentence of each chapter strong and keep the chapter short. That those I are want now the publishing advice too. I just want it all. The publishing <laughs> advice is now that I'm a publisher, um, I feel very differently about books we have to turn down. And I don't view it as much as rejection as like, we have a very specific thing we're looking for and we only have a few slots. Most of them aren't going to work because we only have this little puzzle piece to film. And so we turn down tons and tons of books all the time. It has nothing to do with the quality of the writing. Sometimes, I mean, of course it does in terms of sometimes, but a lot of most books we are pitched are represented by great agents and are really well written, but they just might not be a fit for whatever other reason. As a writer, I took that very, very personally. And when enough people had said no, I met, I assumed that all those responses taken together was a referendum on my writing ability and whatever, maybe, maybe it may have been, but I think you have to figure out if you are a good writer before you start pitching publishers get external feedback, but really get a sense. I mean, if no one's ever said you're a great writer, like look into that. <laughs> like even a teacher, somebody along the way should have hopefully told you that you're a great writer or you just believe and know you are. And that's, that's great too, but you have to show your work to somebody else. And then once you know that you're a, at least a decent writer, you don't have to be like the best writer on the planet, but just then you just have to know that even if you get a hundred rejections, it doesn't mean the book is any worse. You know what I mean? Like it just might not fit anywhere. And that's why I think all these smash hits come and they, and authors say, oh, I was rejected by so many places. That used to shock me. It, it no longer shocks me. It, it just means that like, it might be something people haven't seen before. It might be, there's, there's so many reasons why books get rejected. And only one of those many, many reasons is talent. So don't overemphasize that explanation when there are so many other ones. I love that. What would you what would you say was your own relationship with rejection? I mean, I obviously know having read bookends, but if you could tell oh. our listeners about it and then the evolution into this you're talking about repurposing rejection, which I love. Yeah, I've gone through a lot of rejection, but I would lick my wounds each time. Each time I would think, oh, okay, that's just it. I'm just not going to do it again. I'm not going to try to write another novel. I'm not going to try to write a memoir. Like, that's it. This is the universe telling me that this is not what I should be doing. I'm going to listen to the universe. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm done. But then I wouldn't be done. It's like a bad breakup, right? Eventually you want to date again. It's just like instinct or something. And that's how I feel about my relationship with writing and rejection, that rejection is a part of it, but it's better to have loved and lost, I guess. I'm glad I wrote all the books I tried to, to write because they led me here to the book that's now coming out. And maybe this is the right time. You know, I also liken it to having kids. Like I, I wanted a third kid on a particular schedule so badly, and that didn't happen. And it, I ended up having kids on a schedule that is now amazing with a big age gap, but who knew? Maybe this was the right thing all along. You just can't force it. You can't force it. And who knows? Who knows how the world works, but maybe your book is going to come out at the time that it's supposed to, even if it's not what you thought you wanted. So you keep on giving me great insights, even though I've finished the book already. So I'm <laughs> still I'm still getting great insights. I love this. You also wrote a children's book that also has the best title, Princess Charming. What were some similarities between writing a children's book and a memoir? And what are some differences? And 
follow-up question, what are you writing now? Because our listeners really asked me to ask this of you. They're like, what is she working on now? Oh, that's very sweet. There are almost no similarities. <laughs> Ooh, okay. I, I fell into Princess Charming. A friend had an editor friend who I went to lunch with and she said, I have a title, so I can't even take credit for that. Princess Charming. She showed me a picture of an illustrated girl sitting on a bench with some animals looking very dejected and the sign tryouts overhead. And she said, if you were to write a book about this character, Princess Charming, how would you do it? What would the story be that led her here or whatever? So I came up with this whole story idea and that was... I pitched it to her. She was like, that's great. She bought it. I wrote it the first draft in like an hour. Then I had one more go at it. Then we had a meeting together where we rewrote it together. And that was almost it. I mean, it was, it did not take very long. The things that I did in my life to get to a point where I met the author who had a friend who was the editor starting her own thing at Penguin Random House, that all took a lot of work. That was hours and hours of podcasting and preparation and reading and relationships and, and business savvy and all of the other stuff led me to these opportunities. But once it came, this was very easy. The memoir was the complete opposite. I have been trying to tell at least the part of the book about losing my best friend in 9-11 since 9-11, when I first started writing about it for my business school newspaper, I've wanted to get that story out for years with this you know, very specific sense of urgency to it. And it's taken a lot. It has not been a straight path. Many times I thought it just wasn't going to happen for me. And then it did. And so I am... You know, and I even write about this in the book, which is a little too meta, right? I'm writing about the rejection and the fact that it's a book, but I am, I was so excited. I mean, I was excited, of course, for the children's book and very grateful. And I had a great time with it, but this was so many drafts in the making to get me to a place where I could send this proposal and then write this new version that was finally right. So it just, they were not similar at all. <laughs> In terms of what I'm working on now, I'm working on so much new stuff on the writing side and on the business side. I have these three divisions now of Zibby Owens Media. I have the Zcast podcast network with new shows launching soon. And I think six shows already up. I think another three are in the works. I have Zibby Books, which is my publishing house. And we have 18 books we've acquired already. And they'll start coming out in January of 2023. So I have lots of meetings and strategy and all of that, plus reading submissions and everything. So those books are very exciting and they start coming out in like six months. And then on the Moms Don't Have Time To side, I'm launching a new content site very soon, which I'm excited about too, to give people more of a home base for who, people who want to be part of the Moms Don't Have Time To community, want to come to events shop, get suggestions. It's going to be curated content for the crazy busy with connection as well. So I'm excited about launching that. And of course my podcast, I'm going to continue to do seven days a week. And then I'm, I'm working on a novel and Ooh, novel working on a novel and writing a bunch of content for the content site. So can we know what the novel is about or is it top secret for now? It's top secret for now. Let me see how it goes. I'm still in the, no one ever has to see this mode. <laughs> but I will say that I am only going to write something that I have a lot of fun writing and that I laugh doing and that brings me joy because I really don't even have time to be working on something like this. So this has to be like my escape from the rest of the world. Like it has to be fun. So if it's fun for me to write, it's hopefully fun for people to read. It's not dark. It's not heavy. I don't know if there are any life lessons. We'll see. But I just want it to be entertaining. That's really my, I want it to be entertaining and to always, I, with everything I do, I want to make people feel less alone. But this 
this one, I, I would just like to to entertain, amuse, and maybe make people people think at the same time. Your memoir did that. It invited introspection while also fostering a sense of community because so much of what you go through is are things that anyone who loves to read and write or read or write, I suppose, will really, really connect with, I feel. I I also wanted to ask you, so let's talk about Zippy Books. Let's talk about the fact that you're a publisher because that is super exciting. And it obviously means that you wear many hats. I forget who who's the person you interviewed because I do listen to your podcast who called you famously the most busy woman in books. And mm-hmm. she was right. So what is, what is Zippy Books looking for? Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Sure. We we have 18 books and we only do 12 a year. So we are booked for at least book solid for about a year and a half, but that's okay. Actually, some of those are still being written, but we bought on proposals. So I shouldn't say it's that linear. We are looking for fiction and memoir with a strong sense of voice and a strong sense of place that keeps readers turning pages, that entertains busy people, and that has sort of a larger meaning to it at the same time. Sort of like what I was describing, what I'm trying to write. <laughs> but we're looking for a range of voices, diverse backgrounds, diverse cultures. We want people who want to share their story and by doing so, you know, make the world feel a little bit smaller. And we are thrilled with the authors we're already working with and can't wait to meet new authors. We have a unique model and that it is very collaborative. So I think it's a self-selecting audience. If you do not want to go on a Zoom call with the other authors in the in our company, like and make new friends, so to speak, you probably don't want to do this if you're a total loner or you are happy with just sort of going about it the way it's been done. But if you are entrepreneurial and want to try new ways of reaching readers with books and your message and everything else and doing it as a, as a collaborative team, then this is the place for you. That sounds super exciting. And let's talk podcast now. One of my favorite chapters in bookends is when you describe the rejection that changed your life. <laughs> and I really laughed when you're, you know, when I think I forget her name, Sarah, maybe, you know, said you should start a podcast and your reaction was, what was it? I said, what's a podcast? Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> so could you tell us the genesis of that? Yes. The genesis is that I had, I had started, I, I had gotten divorced. I have four kids. I had gotten divorced and suddenly had a lot more time on my hands and went back to my first loves, writing and reading. And I started publishing a bunch of parenting essays and that lasted for, I don't know, over a year or something. And by that point I was in a new relationship with my husband now, Kyle. One night he said, you should put all these essays into a book for moms, parenting essays. And I was like, moms, I don't have time to read books. And then I was like, that's so funny. That's what I'll call my book. But everybody I talked to said no one in publishing would find that book title remotely funny and that parenting essays don't sell, especially by somebody who is unknown. And I was like, well, you know, I have been freelance writing since I was 14 years old. And they're like, yeah, that doesn't count. You're not on social media. No one knows who you are, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, all right, well, scrap that. I did talk to an agent who took me on at the time and I talked to her about writing a different type of book, but I did still have that title. And then a friend, Sarah Mlinowski, who's a very best-selling successful, amazing middle grade author was the one who suggested that instead of doing that proposal, she's like, I don't think this is the right thing for you. This isn't it. Give me a minute. Let me think about it. And then the next day we were, I was walking out of school. She was walking into school. She was like, you should start a podcast. So I guess if that book had sold, I might not have started the podcast. And 
you know, I think about this all the time. You know, my goal originally was to was to sell a book. Now I sell everyone's books. You know, I, I help sell so many books and I've met the most amazing authors and I've, I never could have imagined how amazing this would be in a million years. And it's been a joy. Every day is interesting and I learn something and I read something great and I talk to someone interesting and it's amazing. Yeah. You help give birth to books. That's like <laughs> the coolest thing ever. I'm like a doula. Yes. <laughs> book doula. We should add that to the very long list of things that you do. So, <laughs> so I'm thinking of, I have the page number written down on my notes. It's page 46. When you mentioned that the episode where you interviewed your dad was your, your favorite interview of all. And I thought yeah. that was so sweet. And I decided to ask you a question. If you could interview any author who has already passed away, what author would it be? Mm. I would want to interview Caroline Knapp because Ooh. she did pass away in the last, I can't remember, maybe 10 years, 20 years, something like that. I read everything she's written. She wrote a book called Drinking a Love Story when I was, it must've been published in like the late nineties or early two thousands. I loved that book. I've read it several times. And and she then also wrote some, I think it was called Pack of Two about her and her dog, which actually I, I wouldn't mind rereading now, but I don't have time. And her, her, her books were so personal, like very intimate. Like you finished reading and you were like, I love this person. I feel like I know this person. I feel like we would be friends. And so I, I couldn't follow her, but you know, if she, if there were Instagram, I would have been following her and like finding her on tour, but I never did all that. It was too long ago. And then I found out she had passed away and I was... I was just devastated by that, even though I hadn't known her personally. So I would like to interview her. When we know someone's story, we feel like we know them. It's, it's mm -hmm. the trippiest thing. So you mentioned that it's really important to know if you are a good writer, which is mm -hmm. great advice, of course. I think people should think about that and should really work on the craft of writing. It's something that we strive to do here on the podcast, which is encourage everyone to really study the craft. What's your process in terms of like, do you have beta readers? Do you have critique partners? If you're working on something new, such as the top secret novel that I am so curious about, do you show your pages to a select group of people that you trust? Is that how you do it? I read them out loud to my husband. Ooh, so Kyle, is Kyle is just like multi-talented, like tennis, great husband. <laughs> yeah. Well now, yeah, now he's, he plays tennis for fun, but no more, not professionally anymore. Yeah, he is, I guess, my first listener. I love reading what I write out loud because I then I hear when I read it, like what needs to be changed and all of that. And he has great suggestions. I, I often show early drafts to my mom. Who else? I mean, when I was working on bookends, I would share it all with my editor and we would go back and forth and it didn't have to be polished. So Carmen as well, but that's, that's it now. I mean, that's not what it used to be. I used to work really closely with a business school classmate of mine, Lee Carpenter, who's a novelist and she would read every, you know, I tried to write books and I had a couple of friends of my moms who would read them. If I'm writing essays, occasionally I'll show Jordan Blumetti or Emily Sharp on my team of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, which was, which is morphing into Moms Don't Have Time to that content site because they're great essay editors. That's about it. But I took many classes, like learning, took many writing classes, writing workshops, writing groups, writing programs. I've done all that stuff. Plus you received validation. At least that's how I read it quite early when your essay was published in, was it 17? Mm -hmm. I swear I, my memory's just the worst today. Okay. 17. Yeah. So that's super exciting. That's, that's so awesome. What advice would you give to memoirists specifically when, you know, they're going to set out to write their story. Is there anything that you would tell them to, to keep in mind other than no one is ever going to see this? Anything on the craft side? 
I think you have to have some sort of point of view when you start some organizing principle, which will make it clear to you what to include and what not to include. And I think there has to be a reason why. We all have stories. Like we all have life stories, obviously. Why is yours a book? Why, who are you trying to reach and why? Why is it important that this book also be on the shelves? And then when you figure that out, organize around that and keep that top of mind and and then start with the scenes. It's almost like back in school where you had a thesis with supporting paragraphs underneath it, but you kind of have to have some sort of a thesis and then have your examples, have your scenes support the thesis. Don't ask me what mine was. I can't even tell you offhand, but I know at some point I had like a guiding principle of, uh, is this worth including and, and all of that. But, but mostly I would say, don't worry about who's going to read it in your family or among your friends. Or a lot of people are like, well, with memoir, yeah. there's so many people involved. I would say, don't, don't even worry about that. Get the story down. You could always turn it to fiction. You could cut characters. You can do so many things, but you can't start playing with it until you have something. You can't be afraid of that. That's like being a doctor. I'm being afraid of seeing blood. It's just, it's, it's way too part of the process. It's, I assumed your organizing principle was how books shaped you. And I know yeah. that there's, there's a lot more than that, like that there are stories that aren't about books at all, but it's still, it's still there. It's still a common thread. Yes, that is so a common thread. This was so much fun. Sibby, thank you. This is my final question. Okay. Could you please recommend us a book? It can be a book that you're excited to read. It could be a book that you adore. And if you want to recommend like seven instead of one, that is fine. That is what Jennifer Close did. I was like, Jennifer, could you recommend a book? And she was like, here's seven. So I won't do seven. I'll, I will do two. The first one I recently finished and adored called The Caretakers by Amanda Bester Seagull about a group of au pairs and moms in a suburb of Paris and the book opens with one of the children dead and it is so good and I think everybody should read it. It's my new favorite book of the early summer. And the next one I'll recommend is coming out in the fall. And I just like literally can't wait to put all my other books aside and read it, which is Danny Shapiro's new book, Signal Fires. She is one of my favorite authors and I literally cannot wait to read it. I want to just echo the recommendation for The Caretakers because I'm reading it now and it's really, really good. Um, very unputdownable. Sibby, mm-hmm. thank you for joining us. This was such a pleasure, such a joy, such an honor. I hope that this was a good experience for you because I was super nervous going in because I'm interviewing one of the most famous interviewers ever. You did a great job. I am so touched that you read my book. This has been a true delight. Listeners, please check out Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, which will be on sale on July 1st, 2022. It is a joy, a joy. If you love reading, if you love writing, if you have ever loved someone, you have to read this. And I promise it will, there are moments where it's going to break your heart a little, but then it's, there are also many moments where Zippy's going to put your heart back together with like a warm blanket. You're just going to really love it. I promise. So check it out. Thank you. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. 
To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. This guest is a UK-born Zambian of Nigerian and Jamaican heritage who lives in Lusaka. Married with three children, she heads a dynamic advertising firm. She's passionate about the growing literary scene in Africa and enjoys the power of storytelling. She's been published in the African Woman Writers e-publication anthology, Different Shades of a Feminine Mind, and featured on AfricanWriter.com for her story, To Hair is Human, To Forgive is Design. She has been published in Short Story Day Africa, Hotel Africa, and the manuscript for her novel, No Be From Here, was selected as a Grey Wolf African Prize finalist in 2019. It's my pleasure to welcome Natasha Omakodian Kalula Banda. Natasha, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bianca. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, the novel that we're discussing today, No Be From Here, here being HIA, we're really excited that this novel is now available in North America thanks to a collaboration between a South African indie publisher, Blackbird Books, and a Canadian indie publisher, Rising Action Publishing Collective, who we know on this podcast. We know Alex and we love her. So up until then, it was very frustrating for me because I would chat to book clubs and they'd go, which African authors do you recommend reading? And I'd be like, I have a huge list, but you can't get their books anywhere outside of Africa, which was problematic. So we're adding this to our bookshop.org affiliate page so that you can find it. And it's so, so important for these African stories to be told across the world. So Natasha, no be from here. For a debut novel, it is extremely ambitious because it is not just one point of view. It's not just one timeline. I think you have three POVs and you have multiple timelines. So let's talk about that and the challenges that that presented you with as a debut novelist. Thanks, Bianca. Certainly there were challenges, I I mean, coming with a dual narrative, but then of course we have the the third POV, which is grandmothers, although it's written in an omniscient perspective. So yes, that was a challenge. And I guess they say luck is for the naive, right? For the first timers, because <laughs> if I if I was more aware of the challenges that I'd faced, I don't think I would have gone ahead with the project in the way that I did. So it really was at the time, I think just organic and sort of looking at what the story needed and the perspectives that needed to be shared in order for the no be from here title and theme to truly resonate. So the challenges I think were because it's told in first person from the two cousins, I had to really then work on voice. So making sure that the voices were distinct from each other was something that I think happened with more revision and more revision. So it didn't just happen the first time. It sort of gets better as you go. But I think what that did do is it did distill, especially for Whoopi, I think for me, just really, I could actually, I actually reached a point that I could hear her speak. So I think it really makes you work on refining voice. So, I mean, it looks like a challenge, but what it does do is then maybe bring that skill out, which maybe you didn't even know you had in the first place. And then also, because the story starts when they're children and sort of ends when they're adults, again, there was the issue of voice being different from when they're younger to when they're older. So that was also a bit of a challenge because I had to get them to gradually grow in their opinion, the way they spoke, the way they saw the world. Um, and again, I probably wouldn't have done that if I knew those would be the challenges, but we that's what we thank 
for first time for a debut, I guess. That is so, so true because you don't know what you don't know. And when you don't know, you're just like, it'll be great. I can make this work. But what Natasha just said, she's made two excellent points. One, firstly, she has these two characters, Bupe and Maggie, who are pretty much the same age. And they're women, young black women. So to have characters who are from the outside so very similar to differentiate their voices is incredibly difficult. If you're writing a dual POV novel where one character is 80 and one character is 20, that's so much easier. But then again, like Natasha said, she wrote them in the first person, plus these characters were aging. So their first person voices had to age with them. So a huge, huge challenge. I actually want to read some excerpts here that we have just from the two different perspectives so that you can hear how she did this. The one is from Bupe's perspective. So she goes, later, we are allowed to sign out our CD player from the dorm matron. Maggie and I lie down exhausted, but in a good way, the kind you get from doing hard work and doing it well. We lie on a top bunk and earphone bud in each ear, sharing music and mapping out our futures. Tuck spread from our tins between us, crunchy chocolates, eat some more biscuits, brands from here that I'm learning to love. I suck and chew on a long pink fizzer. I wish I'd stayed in London with my mom and dad still together. I'm startled by her words. She never speaks about family. Really? I wasn't sure at first, but now I wish I'd been sent here earlier without my mom and dad. This place calms me, you know, like I've never known life could be so still. There's no police asking dumb questions as we walk home. There's no placards or protests to make. Here we are first-class citizens because we're in our country. You feel me? And this is a character who moved from London back to home, pretty much. And here's a perspective from Maggie. It says, home is fleeting, beautiful, fragile. It flutters away like the orange and black butterflies in the garden that I tried to catch with my open palms. After that, I do not see daddy again, not for many, many years. My parents' lives continue, each of them finding new lovers and new lives, fresh starts, playing the game of divide and multiply, leaving in no man's land, a remnant of dreams gone wrong, of pain and despair, a family that will never be again, or was it ever, maybe it's all in my imagination. So very much you can see there the extremely distinctive voices. Now, Natasha, let's talk about the beginning of the novel, which is sort of brokenhearted grandmother Margaret, whose death is dramatized in the prologue, set in Zambia in 1967. Can you take us through that? Were you always going to begin with that? Or did you begin with Maggie and Bupe? And then you were like, okay, I need Granny Margaret in here to set the scene. Right. And thank you. I, I always say thanks for asking about Grandmother Margaret, because she, as I always say, is the foundation and beginning and end of the story. Even though we go into a newer generation for most of the story, Grandmother Margaret, gosh, she came to me first before any other character in this book. And it was really clear, I think, that first scene of her in the mirror. I didn't know where it was going, what it was going to do, but I followed the voice and the image, I guess. So it's funny that in the creative process, she came to me. So I was compelled to write her. She, she was very demanding. And I sort of put her away for a while. And Maggie and Whoopi's story in my head at the time was something completely separate. It was a separate project. So only later, I think, when I had created these characters in Grandmother Margaret's world in 1967, did I realize that I could marry the two projects. And when that happened, it sort of was like, boom, it was... <laughs> 
it was like, well, we've got something. But before that, there were parallel projects. But Grandmother Margaret was always the first. She, she was the inciting incident, and uh, figuratively and literally. So when the project began, it only felt natural to begin with her and then let the whole story carry on from there. So let's talk about her as an inciting incident. So do you mean by her death is the inciting incident that triggers everything? Because remember, listeners, always talk about the inciting incident as being the first domino that tips. And without that tipping, none of the rest of the things can tip, which means the story doesn't take place. But again, we also say on the podcast, because people say, why can't I have an inciting incident that happens in the past, that's sort of off the page, and then the story begins in the modern day now? And we say, look, that thing that happened in the past kind of is the catalyst, it is the inciting incident, but you still have to answer the question in your present day timeline, why now, why today? Why does the story begin in the present day narrative where it does if the inciting incident was the thing that happened so many years ago. So can you sort of answer both of that for us, Natasha? Yeah, I think an inciting incident, particularly in this case with Grandmother Margaret in this accident at the beginning, on one hand, it absolutely was the inciting incident. It is what kicks off everything. And for this particular work, the entire question, because it's a mystery for the girls, I think I had some editors read and go, oh, it sounds like a cozy mystery. Like, And I'd be like, not really. It's a family drama. So there is that element. But ultimately, the story is about these young girls many decades later questioning what happened to her. So it was only natural that that is the first scene and the first sort of haunting because even though she, she appears in the book in terms of text, maybe 10 percent of the book, the question about how she died and why she died and why everything in today is where it is, is because of what happened in the opening pages. For this particular project, that was a natural way to start. I think I've had one or two people observe and say, well, I wouldn't have started with that incident because it's so dramatic and intense. And then what happens after that? So I guess that's the catch. I think maybe alluding to what you're asking, that some people say maybe the incident should have happened before. And you start sort of on a very expositional plane, I guess, as you start your novel. And then, But I don't think so. I was like, look, <laughs> I'm OK starting with the drama. I'm OK starting with the intensity of the feelings and then exploring how that has an effect many decades later on, on these young girls. So I think it's different for every writer. But I would say go for that inciting incident if it's there, if you've got it and it makes sense and it gives you a situation which you can unravel as, as the story goes. I thought it was marvelous in terms of setting the tone, setting the scene for everything, because you can have these characters who loom so large in their absence. We seem to think characters can only loom large on the page when they are there. But in think of our own lives. The people who loom the largest are the people who are no longer in our lives for whatever reason. They chose to leave or they passed away or, or whatever. And that absence can feel very much like a presence. The question I think that I was trying to ask is when it came to your present day story, how did you decide at where the present day story would begin in terms of what was the catalyst for the present day story beginning in that opening scene? Right. OK, so I guess looking at it that way gives it two starting inciting incidents, right? <laughs> to be very honest, I just started with the most emotive point I could think of in Maggie's life. Again, fairly dramatic, but not far from some realities, from many realities. 
And I think there, there are some tips also in, in my writing classes and, you know, classes I've taken that, you know, sometimes just take off from the most emotive, true, true point that you can and, and take it from there. And I think that is exactly what happened with um, starting the scene with Maggie and her parents, because the whole story anyway is about families unraveling and separating. So it does start with that. It starts with her grandmother in that situation and then her as a child with her parents splitting up. And then we just sort of we created the situation and then then we go from there. So it's all character led, but based on the situation. I love that in terms of like the emotional truth, finding finding that emotional truth and, and sort of beginning with that. So a question we get often, Natasha, for people who are not in North America, who are in Europe, who are in Africa, wherever it may be, and they're writing these stories that are very specific to where they come from. And so character kind of becomes setting, but they are wanting their books to be read by a wider audience. They don't just want it to be read in wherever they're writing from. So yours is based in Zambia. What were the challenges there in terms of writing it in a way that felt authentic to you without having to make it too Western in terms of other people understanding it, but also giving enough context so that when it was available to a Western sort of readership, they weren't going, oh, I'm lost. I don't know what this means. I don't know what the context of that is. So how do you strike that kind of balance? Yeah, that can be a challenge, but it really depends on what your intention in the work is. And particularly with No Be From Here, it really is No Be From Here because it has three settings. It's in London, it's in Lagos, it's in Lusaka. So off the bat, from, from where I'm coming from, that is a lot of different audiences already. And therefore, there is a challenge of authenticity because I cannot be an authentically Jamaican girl or a, a Nigerian girl. So the whole point is about the... I guess, heterogeneity of your culture. And therefore, I was writing in a way that was authentic to someone who is from these different places, but in a way, hopefully, that I didn't have to be explaining stuff. So I think it's context heavy. It's up to the reader, whichever reader, whether it's here or, or in, anywhere in Africa or anywhere in, in England, to sort of make meaning through the context and through the, the characters and the dialogue and what they're feeling, more so than in having to explain what I'm saying. Otherwise, it would be a very dense work, probably dead if you're having to explain every three sentences what anything means. But like we read anything from, I don't know, sometimes you have really regionalized stuff from the States that is accents, you've got cultural sayings and so on. We, we make sense of it. So I'd like to think that anyone out there would be able to make sense of our context, of our, our cultural idioms, mannerisms through context. Yeah, absolutely. And in these kinds of works, what you're going for is the shared human experience that we all share, as opposed to the things that make us different. And in this, it was lovely because there were these references to Zambian culture, to kind of the sense of displacement that some of these characters feel, and you feel the push and pull of it. But you also, I mean, you've written about um, Chinsali, which is where you currently are while we're chatting, which is where so much of the story takes place. And you really made the setting come alive so, so vividly. And this is key for our readers. If you're writing about a place that the sort of average reader, and honestly, in this day and age, it's frustrating, but the average reader is a North American reader. This is who publishing cases to, etc. So if the average reader is not familiar with the setting, 
it's your job to kind of make it come vividly alive for them. And in some instances, setting becomes character. And so read Nobi from here to see how amazingly Natasha did that. Natasha, I want to chat about your journey to publication because things work sort of differently in terms of the African literary scene than what they do here. Here, you have to get an agent first before you could find a publisher, et cetera, et cetera. How, how did it look for you? Can you take us through when you started writing the book to when the book got published, what that journey looked like? Thanks, Bianca. Okay, so my journey was a little different because I didn't have an agent. And when I started writing, I really had no idea about the bigger workings of the industry. I was just writing because I really, really felt compelled to tell the story. But by the time I was done, I had entered into a couple of competitions, I think sent it to a few agents. And I think that's when I got, I think, a close call with one publisher. And also the shortlisting for Grey Wolf was um, really encouraging because I was like, okay, then maybe we're onto something. Maybe there is something here. But for me, I had to do it on my own. It was the first time. So I did work with professional editors, developmental, copy edit, and so on. So I went through the full, I guess, what would happen in a traditional setting, in a traditional publishing house, but with really, really, really great editors (laughs) that I was lucky to find. So for anyone who's looking to do that, I was at the time lucky to find through a platform called Reedsy. I believe there's quite a few like that. Yeah, so um, I, I'm giving a big shout out to Reedsy right now. But I found some really great editors and human beings to work with and who just got the work and we worked together and got it done. And then thereafter, it was like, okay, what do I do now? Do I hunt for an agent again or do I just publish it? And I chose to self-publish at home in my country, Zambia, with no expectation per se. I sort of was like, okay, great. As the story is out, it's out. But then the response was so overwhelming. I'd say to this day, I think the story still surprises me because it sort of found made its way to its own homes. So soon after that, I, I was lucky enough to be invited to an online, I think the pandemic had just happened. In fact, it, I launched it on the, in December 2019. So the pandemic began in where I am in March of the following year. And I was lucky enough to be invited onto a virtual festival by Pan-African authors. And, and so I got to meet all these other authors and publishers and find out what's happening and what the industry is like. And so that was game changing in the sense that the book exposed me to those people. I don't think it would have happened the other way around. And in so doing, a South African indie publisher found and met me. And then thereafter, the collaboration a few years down the line with um, Rising Action and people such as self happened. So I would say for me, it was the complete other way around. The book sort of made its way into the world and I could only give it what I could give it. So yeah, it's been a journey, but I'm very thankful for it. And I don't know if I'll do it the same way the next time around. We'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I always love hearing that because on this podcast, we hear how much of the journey has to be a certain way. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. And so I love it when I interview authors who did not come to it traditionally, not the normal way. It perhaps took a bit longer, but also I feel like a book that, like your book, is the kind of book that just breathes on its own and it's going to find its readers because it has this beating heart. And that's, you know, what people respond to. It's always wonderful when that kind of book finds its home organically, as opposed to you have to do X, Y, and and Z. So we're pretty much at the end of our time together, Natasha. It's been so lovely chatting with you. I know you're working on something else right now. Can you tell us a bit about it or is it top secret? (laughs) Top, top secret. (laughs) 
I'm really excited. No, it's a historical. So it's set in pre-independent Zambia. And yeah, I, I can't say much more, but well, I'm trying my, my hardest. So <laughs> I'm hoping we'll be back having this chat again soon. <laughs> we would love to have you back. And a wonderful shout out to Tabiso from Blackbird Books, who we love, and Rising Action Publishing Collective. And also to Maureen, who's in Canada, who's part of a group of grandmothers in the Stephen Lewis Foundation, Grandmothers to Grandmothers campaign, who work so tirelessly on behalf of African authors as well. So uh, no be from here. It's on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Go take a look. You'll support an indie bookstore. You'll support an indie publisher. You'll support the podcast and you'll support Natasha. Thanks so much, Natasha. Thanks so much, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The Beta Reader Matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at CeceLira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Great news. The Beta Reader Matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, 
And please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.